Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we interview journalists and think tank types about topical global issues. And we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career. Today's episode is a little different than what you might be used to from a typical Monday episode of Global Dispatches. I have two guests, each bringing a different perspective to one vastly overlooked affront to human rights that has been ongoing for the last 50 years. The Chagos Archipelago is a group of islands situated in the middle of the Indian Ocean. You may have heard of the largest of these islands, called Diego Garcia, because it's home to a strategically important U.S. military base. However, the story of how this base came into being is rather sordid and the plight of the thousands of inhabitants who were expelled from their homeland to make room for this space is utterly tragic. I first speak with David Vine, an associate professor at American University and author of a book about the Chagosian exile called The Island of Shame. We discuss the history of Diego Garcia, why the U.S. military considers the base to be so strategically important, and what's become of the Chagosian population since their expulsion. Next, I speak with Olivier Bancou, who, at the age of four, was banished from his homeland. Like many Chagosians, he now lives in Mauritius. He tells me his life story, and we have an absolutely fascinating and somewhat tragic conversation about how a people who have been banished from their homeland adapt and find ways to preserve their cultural heritage. I think the end of our conversation gets particularly intense when he describes something as simple as cooking with coconuts as being so central to preserving his cultural identity. In Chagos, we, we, we are surrounded with more than 3,000 hectares of coconut, whereas in Mauritius, we have to buy one coconut at about 30 rupees, which is very complicated, very difficult for, for some families. Okay, so let's do this. Thanks for listening. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archive and download the app. Subscribe on iTunes if you've not already done so. And as always, you can contact me through that website or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And now here is David Vine of American University. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the Chagosian people are the indigenous people of the Chagos Archipelago, which is a very isolated group of islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It's about halfway between Africa and Australia or Indonesia and due south of India. Um, it, so it's very far, it's, it's a thousand miles from, from the southern tip of India. Um, and the, the Chagosians have been living there and their ancestors have been living there since about the time of the American Revolution. They unfortunately don't live there today because they were exiled uh, to make way for what has become a major 
U.S. military base on the Chagosians' largest island in their archipelago um, called Diego Garcia, which has played major roles in the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In fact, each of the Gulf Wars, the, the base on Diego Garcia, played important roles in uh, shipping major amounts of materiel and weaponry to the borders of Iraq and, and as a launching point for U.S. warplanes and, and it, bombers. And, and, and Diego Garcia was constructed as a U.S. base in, in the height of the Cold War, right? Like, what was the Cold War logic of creating this, this base? Yeah, that's exactly right. The the logic actually and the plan for the base goes back to the late 1950s. So this was the era of decolonization. And U.S. officials were growing increasingly concerned that in the era of decolonization, as nations gained their independence, the United States would lose many of its overseas bases, that, that we would simply be kicked out by um, newly independent nations. So there was a, a civilian in the U.S. Navy named Stuart Barber, who came up with what he called the strategic island concept. And the idea was, in the face of the, this threat of losing overseas bases, the U.S. would seek to acquire as many small, isolated, but strategically located islands around the world that it could build new bases on. And Diego Garcia became the prime target for, for acquisition very quickly. Um, and it was controlled by Britain, so the U.S.'s closest ally, um, the U.S. officials approached Britain in about 1960, and Britain was quickly amenable to the idea. Um, and through a series of secret negotiations, there were, an agreement was, was reached where Britain would provide access to Diego Garcia in exchange for a secret $14 million payment that was transferred from the U.S. to, to Britain in a way that avoided having to go before Congress or Parliament or let anyone um, in, in the media or the public know. And the other uh, stipulation for U.S. officials with the, was that they get access to Diego Garcia and the right to build a base there without any local population. Um, the, the exact words in, in the document um, detailing the deal were that the United States would get exclusive control without local inhabitants. Um, so in an, an agreement that was uh, officially signed in 1966, uh, there was a secret minute that said Britain essentially would do the dirty work of getting rid of the population in exchange for this $14 million payment. So how did they go about evicting uh, the entire population of this island? And, and what size of population are we talking about? The population at the time was about 2,000, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 living in the whole archipelago. On Diego Garcia alone, there were about 1,000 Chagosians living there. And what happened was after the agreement was reached, uh, first, when any Chagosian left their home for regular vacations or for medical treatment that was more extensive than what could be provided in, in, in their archipelago, um, they were simply prevented from returning home. They would go to the docks for their, what they expected would be a return passage, and were simply told, I'm sorry, your, your islands have been sold to the Americans, and you can never go home again. It's quite difficult to imagine what hearing those words would, would be like, um, but that's what Chagosians faced, and they were simply marooned in the western Indian Ocean islands of, of Mauritius and the Seychelles. <clears throat> and so that began in about 1968, 
And at the same time, Britain began restricting supplies to the Chagos Archipelago, to the islands, and um, food and medical supplies began dwindling, conditions on the islands deteriorated, um, which encouraged more Chagosians to leave um, in the hopes that they would be able to return when, when conditions were improved. Um, and when they tried to return, they, they were faced with the same message that, that they could never go home again. Um, in 1971, uh, the U.S. Navy began construction on Diego Garcia, construction of the, the base there. And Chagosians were, were rounded up and told that the entire island was being closed, that it was being turned over to the Americans, and that they would be deported. And in the process of, of that of de deportation, British agents on the island, with the help actually is of U.S. naval personnel, first rounded up all the Chagosians' pet dogs and, uh, to the horror of the Chagosians, um, proceeded to gas them in sealed cargo sheds using the exhaust from U.S. Navy jeeps um, and then burned the, the carcasses Wait, of they, the dogs. They just killed the dogs as a way to intimidate the local islanders? That's certainly the way that, that many have uh, interpreted oh. it, that it must have sent a very strong message about what might happen if anyone decided to resist the, the deportation. Um, so shortly after that, the Chagosians themselves were, were herded into cargo ships. Um, most of them were forced into the hold. These, these were cargo ships, not passenger vessels. Um, so there were very few actual berths for, for humans. Um, so they were herded into the cargo holds with horses and um, guano, which is bird crap, bird fertilizer, um, and, and other cargo, and pretty literally dumped on the docks in Mauritius and the Seychelles. Uh, they were given no resettlement assistance, so they were left there with no jobs, Mm -hmm. No house. Um, all they could bring with them was a single box and a mat and were forced to leave all their possessions behind in, 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 in their, their homeland. And, and to this day, no Chagosians live in Diego Garcia, right? It's all just one giant U.S. military base. That's exactly right, uh, except that the, the base occupies about a third of Diego Garcia. So there's, there's quite a bit of space. It's a relative, it's a very small island, but there's still a fair amount of space that, that is, as far as we know, not occupied by the base at all. And, um, but yes, no, no Chagosian uh, it lives in the, in the archipelago now. The, the last Chagosian was removed from some of the northern islands in the archipelago in 1973. And since then, the Chagosians have been living in exile. They've been barred from returning home. Um, and they've been barred from working on the military base. Beginning in the 1980s, the, the U.S. military began using civilian contractors to, to run the base and do the janitorial work and a lot of the construction and began importing Filipinos largely and Sri Lankans and, and some others, Mauritians actually, but not Chagosians, Chagosians. Um, that they could keep there on a one-year or two-year long contract and then send home. But Chagosians have been systematically barred from, from working on the base. Um, so it seems like the original sin was committed by the, the British uh, here. So have they done anything in recent times to compensate Chagosians for, for what they did? Well, I, 
a lot of people have that interpretation. I, I've always been concerned that the U.S. government, pretty much by design, has has gotten off the hook. The the U.S. government came up, and the U.S. military in particular, came up with the idea of building a base on Diego Garcia, convinced the British to allow them to do it, convinced the British to do the dirty work of removing the Chagossians with a $14, $14 million payment, um, and and issued the final expulsion order, which actually came in the form of a three-word memo issued by the highest-ranking officer in the U.S. Navy, and his words were, absolutely must go. That's what he, the words he had for the Chagossians in 1971, absolutely must go. So I, I really see both governments as, as bearing a tremendous responsibility uh, uh, for what has befallen the Chagossians. The, the British government did use some of the $14 million to compensate the Chagossians uh, with money that they only received in 1978. So five years after the last expulsion, the Chagossians saw a very small amount of money numbering in the hundreds of dollars. After some very intense protests and hunger strikes in the 1980s. Uh, Chagossians were able to convince the British government to offer and to pay um, a, a bit more compensation. But in total, between the two compensation packages, uh, people who received money received about $6,000. So you lose your homeland, you lose all your possessions, you lose your community, your culture, and you received $6,000 in exchange. And not all the Chagossians received compensation at all. Um, anyone in the Seychelles got zero. Um, so it, it, it seems pretty I mean, measly. The, the Chagossians were living on, on a British territory at the time they were expelled. I mean, were they granted any sort of citizenship opportunities? This is a, another of the, I would say, sort of outrages of the story. The, the British government uh, twisted the arm of the newly independent Mauritian government to give Chagossians who arrived there um, automatic Mauritian citizenship. So they, they got automatic Mauritian citizenship, but British officials realized that, that most of the Chagossians would actually be eligible for British citizenship by virtue of being born in a British colony um, that remains a British colony. The, it's called the British Indian Ocean Territory. Um, they and but British officials just said, let's not mention it to anyone and hope that they don't realize they're actually British citizens. Happily, Chagossians did realize um, a, a good few years after the expulsions. Um, and now Chagossians, um, most Chagossians are eligible for full British citizenship. So you've actually seen in the, in the last decade, um, more than a thousand Chagossians moving to Britain um, after they got uh, full British full British citizenship, and, um, and many of them are living uh, around London and near Gatwick Airport. Port, in fact. Did the U.S. lease Diego Garcia, or did it outright buy it uh, in twenty in in the nineteen sixties? Uh, it, it's neither a lease nor a purchase. The, there was a, a bilateral agreement that is not a treaty because a treaty would have had to go before Congress and uh, Parliament. So this is another way that they avoided uh, any publicity and avoided having to go uh, before Parliament or, or Congress. And they, they have this, essentially it was called an exchange of notes 
and there was an initial term of 50 years, which actually will expire next year, and then an automatic 20-year extension. But one of the reasons Chagosians are particularly optimistic about this moment is that the agreement is up for some form of renegotiation prior to the automatic 20-year extension. And they see it as an opportunity to ensure that, that their right of return be recognized and guaranteed and that, that, some, that re, some resettlement assistance also be guaranteed, which they've been pushing for for years, and which actually seems like it's on the verge of, of happening for a, a number of reasons, including the, the renegotiation of, of this agreement. Oh, so, so this year, the USA and the UK are going to have to renegotiate the terms of this agreement, is, is what you're saying. So I can't imagine this is going to be something that will come up in you know, conversations between Barack Obama and, and David Cameron, but somewhere in the bowels of each government bureaucracy, there are people working on the terms of a contract. They're not required to renegotiate, but there are annual negotiations, and, and the understanding is that, that there are some sort of renegotiation going on as part of the expiration of the initial term of the agreement. And Chagosians have been putting pressure on, on both governments to recognize their right of return. And there's been a long struggle in the courts um, that has been up and down with some tremendous Chagosian victories and then some, some defeats. And it will have them actually in, in the British Supreme Court this summer. Um, uh, arguing again for their their right of return, but uh, it's it's very clear that that both governments are are discussing this in a, a variety of ways. Um, just to wrap up, are there other examples of indigenous peoples being forcibly um, exiled from their homelands to make way for a, a for a U.S. you know military base per that you know 1950s strategy memo you described earlier? I, I've been able to document at least 16 other cases uh, since about 18, the, um, the 1890s, so in, in roughly the last 100, 120 years, there have been at least 16 cases in which local people have been displaced as part of the construction of U.S. military bases outside the United States. Um, since uh, the 1950 strategic island concept, there are, I want to be careful here, um, in, in, well, in, in South Korea, the, mo most of the cases predate the Chagosians, is, is, and I, I, would, I would have to go back to look at my list. Um, in South Korea, there, there was an expulsion, uh, or, yeah, forced deportation um, as part of the expansion of a U.S. base just in the last uh, seven years. 2008, 2009, um, that, where the South Korean government pushed some people off their land so that the U.S. base could expand. But most of the cases predate um, the Chagosians, and they include Okinawa, um, uh, some people in Greenland, uh, Vieques, Puerto Rico, which many people know about, um, among others. Um, great. Well, David, thank you so much. Sure. I hope this was helpful. I would say that was very helpful. This is not a subject I knew very much going into this conversation, and I think David did a very good job of giving us the lay of the land. And now let's hear from Olivier Bancou, who experienced this expulsion firsthand and is now fighting for the rights of his people to return to their homeland. Yeah, I was born in Peros Banos, one of the uh, one among the highlands of uh, 
of Chagos Aspilagu. We mainly the Diego Garcia are the main island. I was born on 15 February 1964. So this was right around the time of the Chagos expulsion, correct? Yeah, uh, I can say that uh, the expulsion was taking place uh, during that time. Uh, so what uh, was your family like? What was your family doing? Uh, you know, what were your parents doing for work at the time you were born? Yeah, my parents used to work in the copra industry. As you know, in Chagos, we have the main duties of working in copra industries. And of course, and also uh, as fishermen. My father and my mom used to work in the compa industries. What's the compa? Uh, maybe I'm not understanding. What's the compa industry? The compa industry is uh, working with coconut just to crush it in, in making a coconut oil. Oh, so like picking coconuts and then making coconuts oil out yeah, of them? Dry it and then just crush it and, and to have uh, uh, oil. And, I mean, was this just like subsistence farming or were they working as part of a wider company and collective? Oh, they work for a company uh, based on, on, on Chagos because everyone has to work for that company. The company deal with uh, the exportation of this uh, product. And do you have brothers or sisters? My brothers and sisters, uh, as you know, because education has been introduced late in the 1960s, some have got the, the, uh, this opportunity to go to school, but some uh, have not been able to go. But uh, they usually uh, try to help mom in mom work. Uh, so how old were you when you were forced to leave uh, Chagos? Yeah, I was only four years old uh, when I was forced to leave uh, Chagos. It was in 1968. Uh, and do you have? Any, I mean, do you have any memories from birth to four? Do you, do you kind of remember uh, life not, on not, Chagos? Not, not, so, not so many, because but I can, what I can remember it's uh, life was very wonderful, and I'm always I will never forget the small music instrument that my grandfather gave me. Uh, called Ravan, which uh, when we come to Mauritius, uh, uh, I, I left it there. But uh, because the reason why, because it was only uh, we went to Mauritius in order to have treatment for my sister. But unfortunately, after uh, coming to Mauritius, after the death of my sister, and when we decided to return back because all our belongings we left there, we learned that the highland had been given to the U.S. to be a U.S. military base. And that means that we, we were obliged to leave and to stay in Mauritius. So they wouldn't let you back to the island? No, uh, the, we had not been able to go back. But if we knew since the beginning that it will be only one-way ticket, of course, I don't think that my mom and dad will uh, will make the, the, the trip to Mauritius because no one knows about the decision taken by UK and US with complicity of Mauritius. You see, uh, uh, everything had been done on the on the back of the Sagotian people without letting them know what would be the decision in the future of Chagos. So this was actually a um, dynamic that David described to me when I spoke to him, uh, which was that, you know, people who left the island for medical treatment, as you said, you did, your sister, you said, got, got sick and, and sadly died when she was a child? 
Yeah, my sister passed away when she arrived in Mauritius two months after. What happened? And uh, because there was a, a link between Mauritius and Chagos, because all the provision and everyone who have to to have treatment uh, uh, used to travel to Mauritius, because we have only primary care on Chagos. Uh, if uh, the the problem of the treatment is a bit complicated, we need to travel to Mauritius. But in some way, those who used to go to Mauritius to have treatment, they have uh, uh, they have been cut off from communication from all their family who still was was on Chagos. And so you are one of those families. You're you're cut off. Um, what was life like for you in Mauritius? I mean, where did you find a place to live? How did you live? Uh, I mean, what kind of work did your did your parents were, were what yeah, were they able you know, to do? Uh, arriving in Mauritius after the death of my sister, when we learned that we would not be able to return back, it was a, a nightmare for both mother and father, because they were obliged to find a place. Uh, to live in uh, in the slum of fortress called Kasi, and uh, I can tell you that uh, comparing to Mauritius, in Chagos everyone has his job, everyone has a house, everyone has his his uh, cultural life. But it was not the the case for for Mauritius because that the work that we my parents used to do did not exist in Mauritius. That means that no training had been given to our people to form them, to train them in the new perspective, in a new possibility, new project which exists in Mauritius. Uh, and so what did your parents do? I mean, were they just unemployed? Yeah, my father used to work as temporary uh, lorry helper, and my mom used to work as maid in five different places because they, they got the responsibility to just find out how to help the family because we are all uh, every uh, little children mom and dad have to work harder but i can say that uh, one year after my dad have a stroke and uh, it's only my mom who have to work and even my my older uh, brother have to go and find a, a job uh, to help mom and to help those all of us who are still still not at the age where we can work. Uh, and so, were you in school? I went to school. I went to school. Uh, we attended uh, primary school, and I've got the chance to go up to secondary school. And this is why always my mom encouraged me. And today, I, I can say that I'm very proud to be able, among those Sagotian children, born native who had been able to have a level of education, and I'm proud to use it to uh, to lead the struggle of my people. Uh, and so you got a secondary education in, in Mauritius. Um, yeah. What, I guess, you know, your, your conversations with, with, your, with your family, their parents, uh, was it, I mean, what were those conversations like when you're talking about your homeland? Did you expect to be able to, to go back? Did you re did you think that like oh maybe next year something will happen and we'll be able to return you home? You know, it was always a feeling for all my family, not only for all my family, for all the Sagotian people who had been able who had been living for more than five generations on Chagos. Their dream is always be able to return to their homeland, and I've got this feeling, and this is why I'm and and just uh, uh, commit myself to to continue the struggle because we consider that this is a 
fundamental rights and the dignity of the people. And according to Universal Declaration of Human Rights, who said that everyone has the right to live on his birthplace. And uh, we think that uh, uh, this priority should be respected, mainly by those countries like UK government who pretend to be a champion of human rights. I think that uh, uh, justice must be done, and I think that uh, the day will come uh, in the near future, Tagoshan will be on Chagos. So, uh, are you a Mauritian citizen? No, uh, by nationality, I, I can say I was born in Chagos. What does your I passport was, say? Yeah, my passport, I have a, a general nationality, I am Mauritian and I'm British also. So, how did you, uh, do you live in the UK? I'm not living in UK. I'm living. I'm living in Mauritius. But uh, the most important for me is not UK or Mauritius. It's my birthplace where I was born, and uh, at the same time get get the opportunity to give to my children to be able to live and to enjoy the way of life of the Chagos, where the father and uh, where the grandparents were born. Uh, so you're in high school. Uh, your your uh, father is uh, unemployed and had a stroke. Your mother is working as a maid. Uh, did you start working uh, immediately as well? Like, what what were your obligations to your family? What what sort of how did you see your role in your family growing up? Yeah, you know, uh, after my school uh, secondary school, I I've been encouraged by my mom to help those who uh, who lead the struggle because it's good to let you know that the the Sagoshan struggle had been always led by women, strong women, women who always uh, try to just let our voice to be heard. And I've been joining them, and uh, this is where we, 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 together with them, we create the Chagos Refugees Group, which is the main organization representing the interests of the Sagoshan people. Until now, I've been able to, with my level of education, I just make many applications. I've been able to have a job in Central Electricity Board. Until now, I'm still working, but most of my time is using for my community in order to correct this injustice done by British government, in order to correct all the wrongs did by British government toward our people. So what what does like a day in in your life look like when you're trying when you're in Mauritius like what what are you doing to try to advance your cause Yeah like on um, a day-to-day uh, basis What I need to do either in Mauritius or elsewhere as I am in US or, or anywhere I always try to just uh, send a message and to give awareness to the worldwide about what uh, had been done to us by British government because it's so important that everyone should know it because it had been uh, hidden for so many years. No, more, many people have never heard about uh, the, the, the struggle, the wrong that had been done by British government to the Sagotian people. I think it's by, by the way that we need to have a very good, a big uh, worldwide campaign and at the same time try to have more and more media coverage to let people know that those who pretend, those who always try to give good example, they, by, they themselves try to violate the fundamental rights of the people. Uh, so who do you blame more, the U.S. or the British for this? Oh, I think that in, in collaboration they are both responsible, but the main, the main, the main guilty is the U.K. government. But I can say that uh, the U.S. also have its part of responsibility towards that because without the installation of U.S. military base, the Sagotian would, would be always on, on Chagos. 
because there was a deal made by UK and US, it is at that time that they remove the entire population in order to let them live in exile in Mauritius and Seychelles. So are you willing to accept a solution in which uh, the military, the U.S. military, is allowed to keep its base in Diego Garcia, but uh, the Chagosians who want to return are also allowed to return and, and just kind of occupy the other part of their base, the, the other part that, of the island? You know, our main point is to find a way how to, uh, to be able to return back. We are, we are, at the time being, we, are, we have always said that we can the first time cohabitate with the existing of the U.S. military base without saying that we are for the U.S. military base. What we can say is that it is uh, impossible to accept that other people can work and live on our birthplace like Filipinos, Sri Lankans, Singaporeans, British, American, Mauritian, whereas no Sagotian are allowed. We consider it a discrimination toward our people. We think that Priority should be given to Sagotian in order to cohabitate, to live uh, on the birthplace and to give, get all the, the opportunity of job and live freely as all human beings being able to live on his birthplace. Uh, and so you're, I'm speaking to you right now, you're in the United States. What kind of meetings are you having to advance that goal? I mean, are, are you meeting with members of the military? Like who, what kind of reception are you receiving right now? Yeah, you know, it's a, a great opportunity for me to be here in the United States. I, I have, of course, I will never uh, uh, just uh, abandon any avenue because I'm just trying in a in different way. I, I, I'm here in order to, Take, uh, just uh, let our voice to be heard by United Nations because uh, we we are now we have a, a, a international forum for indigenous population. I take this opportunity to be here and to let uh, my voice listen and the voice of my people. At the same time, I would like to get in touch with uh, Obama administration to let them know their, their, their collaboration with British government who had been uh, make something wrong to Sagotian. And of course, I would like to just more brief people in the Congress or Senate, or in Senate, like uh, I've been able to meet with uh, with members, congressmen, uh, uh, in uh, who form part of the Congress, and also I would like to meet with the press to let the press know because, as in UK, uh, so many people don't aware of our situation. They only known about uh, Diego Garcia. Some known. I just only heard know about San Diego, but I've never heard about Diego Garcia. Did not know that there there, there is a huge U.S. military base uh, outside the uh, U.S. It's uh, it's this opportunity. I will take it to just uh, give awareness to all the people of America to know what's wrong and what uh, what can be done to allow the Sagotian. Uh, uh, to be able to return back to their homeland. So, I mean, there's obvious like a there's obviously a great deal of longing. Uh, I can tell it in your voice. Um, I, you know, I, I just would imagine it in, in in your life. But have you been able to? I just sort of come to terms with the fact that the outcome you most desire to be able to return to Diego Garcia may not happen. 
No, I, I don't. I don't believe that I will not be able to to go. I think that I am very optimistic that Sagoshan would be able to go because, as I said, if we, we should understand, if Chegos, if Gugosha was inaccessible for people, for for human being, we could accept. But we cannot accept. How could it be possible that other people can live and work, whereas we as native we don't have the right? It's something discrimination toward us. This is why we, we are here to, to uh, voice out and to let people know about our suffering. And, and just to be clear, you have not set foot in the islands since you are four years old. Is that correct? Yeah, I've been, I've been able to visit uh, three times the uh, island of uh, Chagos uh, in Jegugasha. And uh, believe me, it is inacceptable to to see the, the state of abandon of the grave of our parent and grandparent in Chagos. This is why uh, where they always say that we need to, everyone needs to promote culture. My question to them is, what about Sagoshan culture? Do we have, do you, sh- you this respect uh, the culture of every people, because every people has culture, has its tradition, and we we do need to pay respect to this kind of thing. Uh, has has the culture been able to adapt in exile? I mean, there are, there are examples of of people being exiled from their homelands, and and you know their culture, their even like the food they eat uh, changes over time to adapt to the new reality. Have there been examples of how Chagosian culture has, has, you know, out of necessity been forced to change? You know, uh, uh, any people cannot forget about culture, but it, it become more difficult for us when we, we, we live in Mauritius to just, uh, adapt or to continue, uh, our culture because, in Chagos, we, 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 we are surrounded with more than 3,000 hectares of coconut, whereas in Mauritius, we have to buy one coconut at about 30 rupees, which is very complicated, very difficult for, for some families. This is why that means that in, in the parts that we cannot promote our culture. And it, it, it will be different if we were on Chagos uh, in order to continue our uh, struggle, our, our, our culture. This is why we just uh, ask uh, the way as everyone to be able to live on our birthplace. And I guess how concerned, I mean, another concern of when, when you have like people in exile is the threat of assimilation, right? Um, when you have a, a small community like, like you are living in a larger community, uh, I mean, are, are Chagosians intermarrying with uh, Mauritian people and losing part of their identity? I mean, is, is that a concern? Is, is that, or, or is the community maybe out of necessity, exceedingly tight-knit, and still maybe like you know, hostile to the Mauritian community at large? You know, I can say that since we, we were living in Mauritius since our exile, we're not, automatically we have this mixture between uh, Sagoshan and, and, and Mauritian and even other, people, other nationalities. But this did not say that we, we, we have forget our, our culture. This is why we just want to do uh, step by step to arrive where we can be able to live freely. And of course, our children, because if we were not uh, obliged, forced to leave our country, uh, our children were, were, were supposed to born there. Because we have been uprooted, this is why our children were born in Mauritius. 
This is why, and it's something uh, very essential for every human being, uh, because uh, everyone just wants to know about its roots, uh, so what, where I mean, it comes from. I, I guess, so So, what uh, are, are maybe you doing personally in, in your family uh, to keep the, the cultural identity intact and, and alive and, and relevant? Yeah, I'm always trying to see, to do what uh, uh, my parents uh, uh, teach me, like uh, our traditional meal, our songs, what, our what's dance. What's the traditional meal, for example? Yeah, we, we have traditional is. meal uh, cooked with uh, coconut. We have uh, fish with coconut, uh, chicken with coconut, which we even once uh, a month, so once we, we, we got the possibility to do it, we just uh, we just uh, prepare it and, and give this opportunity to our children to taste it. Because we don't want to lose, we don't want to destroy, we don't want to lose this this uh, very important issue, which is the culture of every nation. Well, Olivier, thank you so much for speaking with me. This was uh, enlightening, and you know, I wish you the best of luck. I think this is a great historic injustice that deserves to be righted. So, I mean, thank you for your work, and and um, what's next for you? Yeah, I, I, I thank you, and uh, my next is uh, to continue my struggle and to give uh, a, 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 a give a message to the world that uh, respect to human rights must be taken into consideration. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I mean, who knew a discussion of cuisine could be so emotionally intense? So thank you all. Uh, and we'll see you next time. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our other content. And a lot of the content we post is pretty timeless, I think, like this episode as well. Unless tomorrow the Chagosians get their island back. At which point I'll do a update. I'll give Olivier a call. We can have a toast together. In any case, we'll see you next time. Bye.